Good morning. Good to see you today. I do hope that uh, you will take advantage of the, the uh, summer amens, those third Thursday mornings. Uh, I'm going to be out of town for each of those, but uh, I'll look forward to seeing you in September. We're going to study Romans. We're going to try to do it in a year. It may leak over into that next year, but uh, we'll try to get uh, Romans uh, all the way through chapter 16 by the end of our year next year. I'm really looking forward to that because, as you know, when we started Amen 20 years ago, we started with Romans. And so I'm going to complete my teaching, 21 years of teaching at Amen, with, with Romans as well. And that's one of the books of the Bible that really is worth studying over and over again. It has um, sort of the essence of uh, Christian doctrine boiled down for us in that first part of Romans, the first 11 chapters. And then you pick up with chapter 12 and you look at the implications of that in your practical life. So we will have a blast looking at Romans next year. And this summer, as was mentioned, uh, let's stay in the Word. You know, it's, uh, it's much better to have 35 minutes of devotion spread over seven days, five minutes a day, than it is to have one 35-minute Bible study, just being in the Word every day. And what it takes is to do what it takes for us to get up for amen every morning. You just got to set the alarm lower layer. So, uh, if you don't have a habit of reading the Bible every day, why don't you think about starting tomorrow morning and going through the summer and see what your summer is like when you're in the Bible every morning. And, you know, you can just take a paragraph. You can look in your Bible and you'll see little headings, uh, you know, little topical headings of each little section. And it's not even a full paragraph normally. Those are thought units. And at least just read a thought unit per day. Go through the same book of the Bible every day until you complete that book of the Bible, reading those thought units. Uh, and then if you have a journal, you can even take your Amen notebook and write, write on some of the empty pages there and just keep a journal of how you're responding to the Lord after He talks to you. Remember, your devotions is a dialogue, not just a monologue. God speaks to you in the Bible. You speak back to Him in prayer, and your journal is a way of disciplining the way that you respond to Him. You actually put it in words. You're thinking about it. And you can write as much as a paragraph. Sometimes I just write one word. Sometimes it's just hallelujah, (laughs) based on something that's been revealed to me in the word. But you want to have that dialogue with the Lord every day and to train yourself to be in conversation with Him. So really, you can read a chapter of the Bible and you can respond in prayer in seven minutes. So seven minutes a day, seven times seven, that's 49, 50 minutes, almost an hour a week. Uh, in being with the Lord. And, and I encourage you to do that. And then on the Lord's Day, uh, you go to church, and you can also take some time on the Lord's Day to do more serious Bible study, kind of like what we do with Amen. You can, you can drill down, dig down, read some of the footnotes in the ESV, go through a whole, bo- whole book of the Bible, read all the introductory material in your ESV study Bible, read all those footnotes, get a book of the Bible in your head. You notice how we did First and Second Samuel. Now we can we generally have the feel for what First and Second Samuel is all about. Now, we wouldn't remember every chapter, having just gone through it this year, but we have a general feel of what First and Second Samuel is about. That's the way you want to feel about every book in the Bible, that you generally know to whom it was written, why it was written, what's the main theme in, in, the, uh, in that book, so that when you go through it devotionally, you have context, theological context and historical context, to understand what you're studying in those devotional moments. So every day in the Bible, and then usually at least once a week, a serious study of the Bible. So I would encourage you this summer, uh, even if you're traveling far afield, 
uh, every morning. Uh, just remember, amen. Be an amen uh, every morning, uh, not just Thursday mornings. And then I'm assured that you're going to have a really great summer uh, lying ahead of you. Well, let's um, talk about how we're going to conclude our study of David. And there's so many things we've learned in our study of David. Uh, we learned when David was anointed that uh, God didn't pick the most obvious one to be his servant. He didn't pick the, the tallest or the oldest or the best looking or the strongest. He picked number eight son who was out working the field. Nobody expected him to be the anointed king. And we saw early on, God, God does not look at the outside. He doesn't look at your outsides. You don't have to be pretty. You don't have to be handsome. You don't have to be athletic. Uh, you don't have to be popular. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to be the best known. You don't have to be successful. Uh, you just have to have a heart after the Lord. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. It's an issue of the heart. All the issues flow out of the heart. We saw that clearly. We also, we also saw that once David chooses his man, once he chooses you, for whatever reasons, he chooses you from the heart, he then empowers you and uses you so you can face some gigantic problem, some Goliath, some major opponent, someone who towers over you and intimidates you and everybody else. But when God's on your side and you got five smooth stones and a slingshot, that's all you need. So we've seen how God works powerfully through his men. When he lays his hands on you and anoints you with his spirit, powerful things happen. We've also seen, of course, uh, the importance of fatherhood, haven't we? Uh, Usually negatively through uh, uh, Eli, uh, through even Samuel, and through David. That these men who were notable leaders, who were helping lots of other people, uh, didn't watch their own household very well. We've learned some very important lessons about fatherhood. That if we're going to be involved in leading and advancing the kingdom of God, it's most important for us to start right where we are with our own friends, our own wives, our children, our grandchildren. Uh, Be sure that you don't overlook the ones that are right at your feet. Be sure you're loving them and encouraging them in the Lord. And Many of you have grown children. You think, well, what can I do? They're already up and out. I'll tell you what you can do. You can pray for them. You can set for them a godly example. And when they come for you for advice, you can give them the advice that's bullseye targeted upon what pleases the Lord and continue to give them that advice and leave them that testimony. It's very important what you do. I've seen some uh, parents of adult children vastly underestimate their influence and vastly underestimate how much good they can do and how much bad they can do through their example. David showed us over again that he missed that one uh, in several ways. And some of his greatest trials were because of his poor fathering. So we've been warned by that. We've also seen through David how God can forgive the worst sins that you and I can imagine. And some of us have committed some of those sins that were worse than maybe the guy sitting next to us can imagine. And all of us have done things that if we were God, we probably wouldn't forgive ourselves, wouldn't even give ourselves a chance. We just completely surrendered uh, our privileges. Well, David murdered a man so that he could have a, uh, commit, commit adultery unknown to, uh, against that man's wife. And God forgave that. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because he trusted God's forgiveness. He trusted God to forgive him, no matter how bad the sin was, even murder. 
And David trusted the Lord. And you can see it in Psalm 51. So once again, we've learned that your salvation is not based upon your performance, even as a believer. It's not based upon your ministry. It's based upon your trusting the Lord to forgive you and to save you. We learned that clearly in the life of David. But we learned probably more than anything else that the star of the show is not David, but God. It's God who raises up Davids and little Davids, people like us. God raises us up. God anoints us and uses us. God forgives all of our sins. God protects us. And yes, we saw even at the end of David's life, here again, one of his sons, who had probably hadn't been reared very well, is ready to claim the kingdom of his, for his own. And right there at the end of David's life, facing a major challenge. And David is so old and weary, he can't even get aroused with a beautiful naked woman sleeping next to him in his bed. I mean, the man is good as dead. He's gone to the world. And yet God will arouse him. Why? Because God is going to protect his own kingdom. And God intervenes with old man David and enables him to to set his favor upon his son Solomon so that the kingdom of peace will come uh, after David and all the promises of God will find their fulfillment. So we've seen that God's the star of the show. He's the one who's establishing the kingdom and ultimately he's the king. So we've learned all kinds of things through the life of David. But inasmuch as God is the star of the show, what you find is that God's doing through David something that has a lot to do with ourselves and with the future of our, the world and the planet that we live on. God still has designs for this planet. And it still has something to do with David. That's what's so amazing. And you remember he made an enormous promise to David uh, after David had established himself in Jerusalem and after Saul was killed. Now David's being established. And you remember that God made a promise to him that he would establish his kingdom and his house forever. Now, in order to understand David or anything else in the Old Testament, in order to understand it rightly, you've got to go to the New Testament. Now, you say, can't the Old Testament speak on its own? Yeah, it does speak on its own. And when it really speaks on its own, the way the Old Testament itself intends to be interpreted, you'll get that interpretation from the New Testament. You say, I thought I just said, can't the Old Testament stand on its own? Yes, on its own, it's properly interpreted when you agree with the New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament because that is the Old Testament standing on its own. It's God's message in the Old Testament. And the reason this is important is that you can take the Old Testament and you can distort it. And that's what the rabbis did. And that's the problem with Judaism today. Some of you may have a Jewish background. And you know, if you have a Jewish background and you became a Christian, you had to shift your whole way of thinking about what the Old Testament, the Torah, means. That's the reason that after Paul was converted, he was a Jewish man who had been trained in the Bible. He knew his Bible frontwards and backwards. He knew the Torah almost by memory. But when he got converted, he had to go out in the wilderness for 14 years before he started preaching regularly. Because he had to shift all of his paradigms, the way he thought about Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, the Psalms. He had to reorient himself in his Old Testament because he knew the words of the Old Testament. He knew the characters of the Old Testament, but he didn't understand the message of the Old Testament. And he had put all the Old Testament material in rabbinical categories. 
instead of Jesus categories. So Paul had to go relearn his Old Testament. And oftentimes, when we think we've read the Old Testament on its own, we really haven't read it the way Jesus himself read it and the way he means for us to read it. Let me give you an example. Turn turn to Luke 24. And in Luke 24, this is page 2013, you remember after the resurrection that two, two guys are walking, I'm sorry, after the crucifixion, two guys are walking out of Jerusalem together, Cleopas and his buddy, and they're grieving over the fact that this one that they thought would be Messiah got killed on a cross. And of course, if, if a guy got killed on the cross, that couldn't be the Messiah. I mean, this couldn't be the expected king to come if he's killed on a cross. And then while they're walking along, Jesus shows up and they don't recognize him. This is one of the most ironic passages in all the Bible. But uh, they don't recognize him. And you'll notice uh, uh, right around verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now look at this, verse 27. And beginning with Moses, that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, that'd be the end of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when Jesus was walking along with them, he didn't say, hey, look at me, here's my resurrected body. That's what I would have done. You knuckleheads, you're talking about me, you don't even recognize me. Look at this. See the scar on my hand and on my side? But Jesus took them to the Bible, the Old Testament. And he showed them the Christ in the Old Testament. Because they had the Old Testament, they just didn't understand it. They had the stories of David, but they didn't understand them. They reveled in the story of David and Goliath, but they didn't really understand what that story was all about. Jesus showed them it was about himself. Now, turn over a few pages to John chapter 5, and here Jesus is speaking to the uh, folks, uh, you know, Jewish teachers, For example, in Jerusalem, having healed the man on the Sabbath day. And in John 5, he says to them, verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have his spirit, and you don't know the Father. If you know the Father, you will know the Son. You'll recognize Him. If you don't recognize the Son as the Lord, then you don't know the Father. But keep reading. Verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying the whole Scriptures, your Torah, your Old Testament, all points to me. So if you don't understand me in the Old Testament, you don't understand the Old Testament. That's the reason I say if you want the Old Testament to speak on its own, then go to the New Testament and see what Jesus says the Old Testament does say on its own. And on its own, it speaks about Him. You just didn't understand it that way until you got converted. That's the point. So when we come then to the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, We have to be sure that we're also listening to the apostles, to Jesus and the apostles, about what does this all mean? 
I mean, we've enjoyed the stories. We've derived some very fine moral precepts from these stories. We've all been warned. We've all been encouraged. We've seen the acts of God in history, that He's the star of the show. But what does it all mean for us today? Well, we've got to go to the New Testament. So let's do that. Now, turn to the very first page of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And this will be on page 1820. And on Matthew, passage, uh, the very first verse in the New Testament, would you please notice this? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. First verse, you get David's name. Now that's amazing. So when our New Testament begins, it mentions David. You'll find I've mentioned some verses there in Luke in the uh, narrative of the nativity of Christ. You also get references to David. So David's name is mentioned right up front. Jesus is the son of David. Now, why would Matthew mention that? Well, you know that Matthew's gospel, we studied uh, Matthew some a few years ago. You remember in Matthew uh, that Matthew seems to be teaching especially a Jewish audience, an audience that, that knows their Old Testament. And in Matthew, more than anywhere else, you get uh, Jesus saying, this was to fill what, fulfill what was said in the Scriptures. In other words, constantly showing this fulfills Old Testament Scriptures because we're speaking to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew starts, hey, my Jewish friends, look, I'm going to tell you about the genealogy. You know, Hebrews are into their genealogy. You've know, you got to have legitimacy. And through your parents, you've got to have some tribal lineage. You've got to belong to one of the 12 tribes. And everybody knows the Messiah was to belong to the tribe of Judah because it was predicted in the Old Testament. The rabbis got that much. And that he would be a descendant of David. He would be one who would come and fulfill these great promises. So that's exactly where Matthew starts. Now, go over to Acts chapter 13 as well. And when the apostles go preaching, I want you to notice, once again, how important this is to them. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, this would be page 2110, 2111, Acts chapter 13, Paul is in Pisidian Antioch on his first missionary journey. And Uh, you get this wonderful example of apostolic preaching in Acts 13. He says there in verse 16, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he begins to recount the whole story of redemption. He says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. So once again, Paul's going into synagogues, speaking speaking to Jewish people, 
And he recounts in just a few words, you know, thousands of years of Jewish history. and brings it right to David. And then why does he do that? Because he has brought to Israel Savior Jesus. And before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance. Now he's gone. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, <coughs> fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they <coughs> found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now you see in this apostolic, the primitive apostolic preaching, we get the cross and we get the resurrection, but it's all rooted in this historical Old Testament story so that we understand what Jesus has actually come to do. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So he says, Psalm 2 predicted this. It's a messianic psalm. And here it is, that God has begotten him, raised him up from the dead. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's right out of Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, where God promises Israel in their distress, come unto me and drink, all of you who are thirsty, it's free, come and take the water of life, and I will give you the sure promised blessings of David. And Paul lifts that language right out of the Old Testament and says, this is the descendant of David who is predicted. So you can see that, First of all, our first point is we must receive Jesus as the promised Son of God. We must receive Jesus as the promised Son of God and Messiah. So when we look at David in the New Testament, you can see how clearly uh, Matthew and the other apostles make it clear that Jesus is this promised Davidic Son. You must receive Him as the one who was promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Speaking of which, let's turn back and look at it. We'll come back to the New Testament in a moment. But let's, re- let's remind ourselves, page 554, that when God was cutting His covenant with David, He says in verse 11, From the time that I appointed judges over my people, uh, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house... And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So in one sense, obviously God is speaking about Solomon the son of peace will be raised up to build the temple, build him a house. But he says his kingdom will rule forever. And so he's clearly talking about a son to come who will build his house. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 16? He says that 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus comes to build that final, tent, final temple. And what is the temple? It's yourselves. And Peter the apostle says, you're the living stones that are being built into a temple. Jesus Christ is the son of David who's building the temple. So in order to understand what God intends to do, you've got to come to the New Testament, the apostles, so that you can properly understand the meaning of the Old Testament. And we must receive him as such. Even the apostle Paul, as I've cited there, in Romans chapter 1, when he's introducing this great epistle that we'll be studying next fall, he says to him that this is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul, in his very last letter, 2 Timothy 2.8 that I've cited there, when he's speaking to Timothy about the gospel, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So clearly, what the apostles are saying, what Jesus is saying, you must receive me as the king who is to come, the one promised from the ancient of days. So receive him. Welcome him. Welcome him into your heart. That's the first thing the New Testament teaches us about David that his son, the king forever, has come and must be received as such. Now, secondly, uh, notice in the, in the New Testament that we must submit to Jesus as our king. Now, turn once again, let's stay in Matthew, who likes to emphasize uh, these Jewish roots of the gospel. And let's look in chapter 15, uh, verse 22. And uh, you'll see here, that even with a Canaanite woman, she calls him son of David. We're told in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So she is calling upon Jesus for help. Turn over to chapter 20. You'll see a similar thing with, with one uh, who is in need. In verse 30, verses 30 and 31, Jesus sees two blind men. As, as they went out to Jericho, verse 29, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, look at this, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And they kept crying, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. So they recognized him as the king who could even heal their diseases. Now, notice uh, thirdly in Matthew, once again, just turn over a few pages to um, chapter 22. Yeah, I've got 21 here. Let's go ahead and look at verse uh, 21. Uh, in verse 9, here, of course, you had the triumphal entry. And in Matthew 21, uh, once again, Matthew emphasizes what they were saying with regard to David. The crowds, verse 9, went before him on Palm Sunday, and they followed him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we acknowledge him as king. And Jesus was riding on a donkey, just like Solomon, remember, 
when he was appointed by David, we studied this last week, rode in on a donkey. Here's Jesus riding in a donkey. Why? So that you'll submit to him as king. Now, gentlemen, this is really important. When we are saved, when we receive Jesus Christ, we receive him as our Savior. When you receive him as your Savior, you receive him in full. You receive him for who he is. And he is a king. That's the way he's presented to us. That's what David's showing us. You can't receive Jesus without receiving him as a king. If you receive him as a king, you must immediately submit to him. Now, we don't understand kings very well. I mean, we revolted against kings. We trample on kings. We don't want to see kings anywhere close to us in America. We're an anti-monarchical society. If you want to know what a king is like, just look at North Korea. They don't call him king, but he's acting very much like an ancient king. And he just took one of his own family members' lives not too long ago because they dozed off to sleep while he was talking to them. You don't doze off to sleep when the king's talking to you. You take your life in your own hands. Even David's wife Bathsheba was reluctant to go into his presence without being invited. And she, you remember she said to Nathan, okay, I'll, I'll go in. You remember when Esther goes in before the king without being invited? You, you, you put your life in your hands. That's a king. So, so often we, we accept Jesus as somebody that, you know, buddy, buddy, you know. And, and finally, he is our intimate friend. He's our older brother. He loves us. But he's a king. And if you really know him, you treat him as a king. And that's the point of the New Testament. The New Testament shows us Jesus is this Davidic figure, and you're to bow down before him. If you go back to the first pages of Genesis, God is presenting himself as king. He creates everything in Genesis chapter 1 in six days. What does he do on the seventh day? He rests like a king who's enthroned over his kingdom, taking great delight in his kingdom. Now you'll notice on the sixth day that he created his own princes. That was you. You were made in his likeness. And you remember the slaves in in Israel just taken out of Egypt, they've been told all their lives that the only ones on the planet who were made in the image of God were the Pharaohs. The Pharaohs were in the image of God. What Moses is saying to the Israelites, no, you're in the image of God. You're the Pharaohs of the earth. So get that out of your mind. You're not slaves, you're princes. So he had to train slaves how to think like princes. And that's what it means to become a Christian. So from the very beginning, we're told that we're made in His image. We are the vicegerent rulers in the earth under God. And when we in Genesis 2 walked in the cool of the evening with the Lord, you know, that was really in the palace garden. The Garden of Eden was like the king's gardens. And at night, we, the princes of the kingdom, would walk in the cool of the evening in the palace gardens with our Father, who is the God of the universe. That was the dignity that we had before the fall. So from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God is establishing a kingdom. Now, when it was shattered because of our sin, it takes several centuries, of course, for God to bring us to the point where He's going to show us very explicitly in calling out David the reestablishment of this kingdom. And when Jesus Christ comes as the son of David... He's the ultimate king who's going to reestablish the kingdom. 
as it was meant to be in creation itself. So when you receive Jesus Christ, you become a brother, a prince again, back in the new kingdom. But the kingdom is here and it's also coming. That is, it's here spiritually, but it has not come in its fullness yet. That's yet to be. That will be the new heavens and the new earth. But in spirit, God is here in His spirit. He's living in our hearts. And we now see something that we had never seen before. We see the establishment, the reestablishment of God's kingdom even more gloriously than it was in the Garden of Eden when He first made us. That's where history is headed. And I am on the right side of history when I receive Jesus Christ. And I live my life in accord with this kingdom, which is here and which is coming in its power. That's what it means to be on the right side of history, is to be on the right side of what God has ordained as the reestablishment of His kingdom. And when you receive Jesus Christ, you receive a kingdom agenda. And that's the reason that Jesus said in His very first sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you as well. Instead of worrying about this little bill and this income and whether my house is big enough and my car is new enough and my reputation is great enough, instead of worrying all about all that stuff, seek first the kingdom. That's what it's all about. So the only way that you can understand what God was doing through David and all of our studies this past year is to see that that was a major deposit on the part of God to show us what's going on with redemption. When he made that promise to Adam and Eve that he would not destroy them and he clothed them with their leaves and then he sent them out of the Garden of Eden, he didn't send them out without a promise. He said there's coming a day when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent and crush the head of the serpent himself. So from the very beginning when we were ushered out of the palace gardens, we were told that there would be a day when there would be a great conqueror who would come and defeat the one who just undermined us and got us sent out of the garden. And that's what's going on. And you say, well, my goodness, it sure has taken a long time. Well, you remember, with God, a thousand years is but a day. And so He has His plan. He's working His plan. And sometimes you question His plan. But when you come to Him, you begin to see His plan and understand that our duty right now is to submit to the King and to give up our lives for the kingdom. Because that's what's happening. He's establishing it. That's what, that's what Matthew is saying. That's what Paul has been saying in his preaching. From the earliest preaching of the gospel, you get Jesus, the son of David. That is, the kingdom is being established. And this is the final chapter that Jesus now has landed. The final king has come. And you must bow your knee to him. And that's the reason that in Psalm 2, a great warning goes out to all the kings of the earth, including the ruler of North Korea. Let all the kings of the earth tremble. You better fear him and bow now while you've got your chance. So a warning goes out in the preaching of the gospel. It's the good news of the kingdom. The gospel itself is an announcement that the kingdom has come and that the king of the kingdom has set his feet on the planet and that he's coming back. And we're living in this interim period when full rest, uh, restoration is offered, when full amnesty is given to those who were rebels, and God will forgive. So when we understand David rightly, we understand Jesus Christ. You don't understand David. 
And you don't understand what God was doing in David's era unless you know and trust in Jesus Christ. So we submit to him as a king. Now, as part of this, let me move up some verses that I had in the next section, and that's Psalm 110. You have to take a look at this with me. This is crucial in the Old Testament to interpreting David. And once again, let the, let the Old Testament stand on its own. And here it is. Psalm 110, that's page 1084. This psalm says in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, or Yahweh, the Lord, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. This verse is the most oft-quoted verse in the New Testament. Now, why would that be the most oft-quoted verse in the New Testament? Because it's phenomenal. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, who is my Lord? Well, look who wrote it. The superscription says, a psalm of David. And the New Testament affirms, this was written by David. This wasn't written by one of of David's courtiers. Then we would have assumed that the Lord says to my Lord the King, sit in my right hand. That would make sense. That's a typical enthronement psalm. The people are saying, the Lord God has spoken to our Lord the King and told Him to rule. But that's not who's talking. This is the King Himself saying that He has a Lord. But He is the Lord. He's the King. So who is His Lord? That is a mystery. Now turn then to... We'll come back to Psalm 110 if we have time. But turn now to Matthew 22. And once again, of those who quote Psalm 110, Jesus is one of them. Because he knows he's got the the rabbis befuddled. They cannot explain that psalm and still be a rabbi. You cannot believe in Judaism and believe in that psalm. And Jesus knows he's got them stuck. That their Judaism doesn't work anymore. And it doesn't work today either. Because look what Jesus says, verse 41 in Matthew 22. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Saying, what do you think about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit... So David, Jesus affirms, David wrote this and he wrote it in the Spirit. Calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord. Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is saying, a king does not call his son my Lord. The king's sons call the king my Lord. So Jesus says, so if he's David's son, his son, then why is David calling him my Lord? And of course, here's the reason. 
because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the incarnate Son of God. And that's the reason that David, full of the Spirit, transcending normal human understanding, David calls his own son to come, my Lord. It's in the Old Testament, brothers. This is what the Davidic story is all about, that there's coming one in whom we must believe and to whom we must submit. Even David, before Jesus was ever conceived, David submitted to him and called him my Lord. So mustn't we call him my Lord and enter his kingdom and abide by his agenda and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what it means to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn that in the Old Testament through the help of the New Testament. Now thirdly, we must not only receive Jesus and submit to Jesus, but the New Testament teaches us we must worship Jesus as one greater than David. Now we've already seen in Psalm 110 that David... That, that Jesus is greater than David. David calls him my Lord. <clears throat> but look at Acts chapter 2. Once again, very early primitive teaching uh, from the apostles. Let's see what they said on the first day of Pentecost. And this Sunday, of course, we celebrate Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. And when Pentecost came, you remember, the people were, were there, was a, there was a sound of a rush of a mighty wind. There were tongues of fire resting upon the disciples. And then they began to speak in languages they had never studied. And they were not learned people. And everybody knew it. And they heard them speaking in multiple languages as though they were educated men. And they were astonished. And they thought, maybe it's gibberish and maybe they're drunk. And that's what they thought. At 9 o'clock in the morning... These people are drunk. And as I've said before, I don't think they were drunk. They could have been hung over, but they weren't drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. And Peter says, no, the interpretation is not that they've had too much to drink. Here's the interpretation. The interpretation is that the one whom you killed with your wicked hands has been raised and exalted to the heavens. And from that position of the heavenly, He has poured out the promise that Joel gave us centuries ago that our sons and daughters will prophesy, that old men will dream dreams and young men will have visions, and he will fill with the Spirit, give the promise of Abraham finally to his children. And the Lord Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father so that Father and Son send out this gift upon you. That's the proper interpretation of what you see today. But notice in his preaching how he describes Jesus Christ. It's inevitably Davidic. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. That is, he's dead and his cold, rotten body is just a few yards away from you. You can prove it. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn this with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and here's one of the quotes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Until I make your enemies your footstool, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you see how from the earliest days we say, David made these observations about his anointed. He will not let his body see corruption. But David died. So David was obviously looking forward to his son who would never die. And this Jesus was raised from the dead. His body's not in the ground. He's alive. And so the apostles from the earliest moment were showing that the Old Testament story, its deepest essence and significance, points to right now in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the exalted David in our midst. Amazing thing. And one who knows how to disciple men, who's not ignorant of the fatherless, who's not careless toward the widow and the poor. The perfect king is in our midst and has come. That's the point. And we must worship him. Worship him. Our whole lives are to be given to the cultivation of the worship and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, first of all, brothers, he's worthy of it. If you ever take delight in anything good, if it charms your heart at all to see some great hero story or someone who's done some great thing or to admire a great work of art or to hear a beautiful piece of music, anything that delights your heart that is truly good and beautiful, Jesus is truth, goodness, and beauty all wrapped up in one in its ultimate perfection. So if you have any heart for goodness or truth or beauty at all, you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and you simply are astonished by Him. Worship Him and let your whole life be a life of worship. It's so tragic to see today that even in churches, the discipline of worship is declining. That folks think that they can walk with Jesus and not have a pattern of regular worship in their life. When you do your devotions in the morning, you're not just reading the Bible. You're hearing the Word of God that then leads you to worship in your prayer. Everything is leading you to be a praiser. You remember when Jesus came in to Jerusalem on the donkey and the children were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. And the Pharisees said, shut those people up. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, if these don't sing, the very rocks will cry out. And I remember hearing a song by little kids one day and said, the song was entitled this, ain't no rock gonna take my place. 
And don't let, don't let some rock take your place. And what I find happening over and over again, men are letting rocks take their place because they've forgotten what it means to be made in the image of God. You are princes who have been given the ability to see the real kingdom and to behold who the real king is. And your job is to interpret everything in life as a gift from God that's to be brought back to Him in praise. You see it in the sciences. You see it in the arts. You see it in business. You see it in the professions. You see it in daily work. You see it in relationships. You see the king's hand everywhere, and he's worthy of praise. So when he calls us together as a church, and the word church just means assembly, when we're called together as an assembly, why are we called together? To use our time in the most valuable way we could possibly use it and that is to join our hearts and voices together to extol the one who made and redeemed us and who is worthy of all praise. And if you don't know how to praise Him, you don't know how to praise anybody or anything. If you don't know how to extol greatness, how can you possibly acknowledge goodness in any other realm of life? So we come together as God's people to fulfill our primary task so that no rock takes our place and we offer our hosannas to the Lord. That's the reason the Lord's Day is so important. Get that at the center of your life and in the middle of every day, first thing in the morning if possible, let your voice of praise be heard to the Lord. That's the reason you're here. And there's one thing you're going to take with you, and it's only one thing, the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you're going to continue in heaven. So get good at it now. That's our eternal joy is to be the worshipers, the choristers, everybody in heaven is going to be a chorister. Those of you who cannot carry a tune in a bucket, you will not believe the voice He's going to give you. You're going to be better than, than any of the tenors and all the rest you've ever heard in your life. And you're going to enjoy singing. I look at some of these musicians. They can just play their violins, you know, without a sheet of music, and it's just exquisite music. I watch Samuel Metzger play the organ on Sundays. I think, oh, man, if I could play the organ like that. I hear some soloists sing. Oh, what a joy to be able to express yourself in such beauty. Gentlemen, that's where we're all headed. So take your feeble, crummy little voice right now and just get it warmed up because one day you're going to have a very nice voice. And what you've got to do now is get your heart in gear to praise the Son of David. Extol Him and exalt Him. That's the reason you're here. That's what First and Second Samuel is showing us. You get this imperfect David. Yeah, you exalt Him every once in a while, but then you end up scratching your head. What the Bathsheba thing? And you get all confused. Well, he's not perfect, but he's a great repenter. And you're, you're making all kinds of qualifications about David. You make no qualifications about Jesus. He's absolutely perfect in every respect. Praise Him. Spend your whole life and then eternity praising Him. So, listen, brothers, we must worship Jesus as one who is greater than David. And finally, the exalted king has come, and our hearts are at rest. Now, lastly, we must trust Jesus as the conqueror of all of our enemies. Westminster Shorter Catechism number 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. What are your enemies? Well, you certainly have an enemy with Satan. We saw that at the very beginning of this kingdom in Genesis chapter 3. This slimy, crafty being teased us and tempted us, told us lies. We fell for it. 
And he's been oppressing us ever since. He's called the adversary. He's called the accuser. He would take your life and destroy it if he could get his hands on it. The only reason he can't is because you've got a king who is ruling over you and also defending you and who is conquering all of your enemies in ways that you can't even see it. Gentlemen, he's got thousands upon thousands of angels and they're your servants and they are employed in your service to promote your salvation. And they're at work for you all the time. And one day you're going to see it vividly in living color how God has been working to keep you alive in the King, Jesus Christ. He is destroying Satan. Well, you've got another enemy. You've got your own sin. And when you chose to take the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, when our father and mother chose to do that, and all of us fell in them so that now we're born as sinners, and our enemy is our own flesh. We're our worst enemies. Well, what is he going to do? Well, I'll tell you what he's going to do. He sent the Spirit now to dwell in our hearts, to rule over our hearts, and to enable us to walk with him, even with flesh still resident in our being. And one day, our bodies will have died, but he is going to raise us up with new bodies, with no sin in it whatsoever, and sin will be gone and completely defeated. Well, what about our third enemy, death itself? David, or rather Paul, calls this our worst enemy. Well, I'll tell you what he did with death. The son of David came and he laid down his life, not because he was a sinner. He laid down his life because you're a sinner. That's what the king did for you. He took on your worst enemy, death itself, and he defeated it. And so he died that you might live. Now there's a real king, one who's benevolent toward his people. He puts his life in your place. He dies so that you can live. And he's exalted so that you'll be exalted with him. That's what he's done. And this king has come to conquer all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Will you praise him? Will you trust him? And the last call upon our lives in the New Testament is to say, this son of David has come as the perfect rescuer who has come to destroy everything that's out to destroy you. He is your perfect defender. Will you trust him with your life? when things don't look so good and when you have more bills than you do income and when you have relationships that are falling apart and it looks like God has abandoned you, will you trust Him that this king's got a plan and that he's working that plan through the ages and that even your afflictions are meant for your good? Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him so that when you see the end of the story in Revelation chapter 19 and 20 where he takes sin and death and hell and Satan himself and throws him into the lake of fire and brings down for you the new heavens and the new earth and you see the son of David exalted upon his throne in Jerusalem and you are his willing servants who now have the bounty of the universe poured out upon you as the princes of the kingdom. Will you trust him? Can you get that vision in your head? That's where you're headed. As a matter of fact, everything in your life is to ensure that you get there safely. That's what the king is doing for you. So David, in all of his weaknesses, and all of his failures, is pointing us toward a man who is not weak and is not a failure and who perfectly loves his subjects. So receive him, submit to him, worship him, trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the son of David the perfect fulfillment of everything David on his own could not perform. We thank you that he has come perfectly to rescue us, to save us, to bless us, to give us all of the benefits of this kingdom that you've established through his ministry. And now, Lord, make us people who 
receive Jesus as the promised Son of David, who to submit to Him as our King, who worship Him along with you and the Holy Spirit, and who trust Him and you with our whole lives because you have indeed conquered all of your and our enemies through Him. We thank you for this study that we've had together these days and pray that these studies may lead us to be more devoted disciples of the Son of David, the Son of God, the Messiah and King, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.